Cities are how we live in the 21st century. And while they are the center of some of society's most pressing issues, for example, there's a whole movement dedicated to mitigating climate change through the design of our cities, they are also the places where we are most likely to see the emergence of solutions. They are the places where we can manifest change, where we can scale up impact and leverage investment for the greatest good. But with increasing pressure on municipal budgets and often loud detractors that have the tendency to undermine the role of government and our institutions, philanthropy has emerged as an important piece of the city building equation. Historically, philanthropy has focused on substantial gifts to big institutions. We see this everywhere with donations to hospitals, universities, recreation centers, something you can put your hand on or a name on. In this sense, philanthropy has had a tendency to be tangible and focused on outputs, clothing, food, supplies, or brick and mortar installations. Institutions have thrived on a model that rewards fundraising and immortalizes big donors on big capital projects. And many philanthropists have become accustomed to this model. But increasingly, philanthropists are looking to secure more than naming rights with their contributions. They're looking for measurable impacts. It's about issues in addition to institutions. Organizations like the Toronto Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation and others are leading a movement that responds to the need to inspire philanthropists. It's about bringing philanthropy into city building on the social capital side and finding creative ways to strengthen our social infrastructure. In doing so, we're forced to address complex problems that are without straightforward solutions. These challenges make building a building look easy. Global challenges like poverty, reconciliation, and equity are often most visible, most apparent in our cities. So there's a real opportunity to secure measurable impact with strategic investment. And philanthropists are increasingly interested in those measurable impacts with respect to social change. Philanthropy has become much, much more than plastering a name on a building. Recently, I had the opportunity to sit down with Sharon Avery, president and CEO of the Toronto Foundation, to discuss the evolution of philanthropy in our cities and the role and opportunities for philanthropy in shaping societal change. Sharon, fabulous to have you here in the studio. So let's begin right from the beginning. Uh, what is a Toronto Foundation? What do you do? It's a harder question to answer than you might think. <laughs> you know, Toronto, uh, community foundations are a movement that started about 100 years ago, actually, in Cleveland. And it's this idea that every community needs an endowment fund to support it in perpetuity forever. And uh, every community needs to inspire philanthropy. And so in essence, every community foundation, and there are, are 191 of them in Canada, um, every community fa community foundation has a, a, a group of assets. So in Toronto, we have about $408 million that have been donated by community leaders and philanthropists through the last 20 years. And the output of that money, about $15 million a year, go to charities all across Canada. 
and in Toronto. And we also have money of our own, a discretionary money that's been donated by Torontonians for the city. And we invest that in the most vulnerable populations uh, here in Toronto. Fabulous. So I want to do a deep dive on philanthropy. Let's, that's what we'll really talk about here today. But before we do that, like, how did you end up here? Like, why are you doing what you do? Well, I'm three months on the job this week. And uh, so it's been a great ride so far. And the Community Foundation has been a real natural transition for me. So I came out of UNICEF after the last eight years. I was at Sick Kids before that. So I am grounded in Toronto, but I'm also got the bigger global picture on community development. And so I took this job uh, just a few months ago. Why I'm in the sector is more speaks to my dad, actually. Um, when I uh, was very young, I grew up in a small town outside the city. And my dad, every Christmas, uh, would walk by Salvation Army kettle and he would throw a $20 bill in, mm. the, in the kettle. This was the 70s. So that was an awful lot of money. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so I was probably six or seven and I said to him, one year, I finally got curious enough to ask him why he was doing it. And he said, well, when he was young, he grew up at Queen and Logan, mm -hmm. what was the, then the edge of Cabbage Town, right? Which is now the new Regent Park rebuild. Right, right? in the heart of downtown Right Toronto. in the heart of downtown. He was the youngest of five boys. His parents had immigrated from England uh, during the Depression. His dad was a janitor on Bay Street doing the night shift. He would walk from Queen and Logan to Bay Street and do the night shift and come home. Five of them, plus mom and dad, plus a boarder, living in a three-bedroom home on Logan Avenue. And my dad had ketchup sandwiches. He was in the milk program at school. They had nothing. So one Christmas, um, he remembers very clearly, he said he was probably four or five. Um, he's at home. And the doorbell rings and he and his mom have just been out for a shop, a Christmas shop. And um, she answers the door and it's the Salvation Army coming collecting for Christmas. Hmm. And my grandmother says, we have nothing. We have, I have five boys, my husband and a boarder. Mm -hmm. I've just shopped. I have a nickel left. I'm going to give it to you because somewhere in the city, someone needs it more than we do. Wow. And so my dad said this really struck him because he knew, as I knew $20 was a lot, he knew the nickel in the 40s was At a lot. At that time was a lot of money. And so, you know, fast forward a week later is Christmas and there's a knock on the door and the family opens the door and there on the front stoop is a Salvation Army basket and it's got ham and mittens and socks and oranges and things my dad had never seen or tasted, could wow. never have dreamed of. And he said, I've never forgotten that act of kindness. I never forgot my mother's act of kindness, but also what we got in return. And he said, that's why I put $20 in the kettle. Mm. And my dad went on to become a firefighter in the city. He was a firefighter in East York for 36 years. He loved every day of his work because he really believed that, well, it, it drove him like giving back and being kind. And so I do believe that's sort of part of my own DNA and what inspired me to get into the sector and makes me so proud to actually be able to tell that story in my new job, because I couldn't have told that story mm -hmm. at UNICEF and I couldn't have told that story at Sick Kids. But, but here in this job, I get to honor him and, and he passed away last year. And, and uh, I'm just so 
proud of what he created. And, and for me, that's part of my journey. You know, you reinforce through your story how each one of us is made up of a whole variety of circumstances that shape our values and shape who we are. And it's so important that from one generation to the next that we tell those stories and we build those stories and we share those stories so that we really don't become unrooted, if you will, from from who we are. And I, I have to say, I just love that story because there's so many different layers to it. There's your grandmother's generosity, which in turn inspired a new way of thinking to your father about really his circumstances and what he had. But then there's also the, you know, playing it forward, the generation generosity of the Salvation Army that resulted in the family just, you know, having this experience and access to a Christmas they never would have had otherwise. It's interesting because I think one of the challenges that we face in living in a city that is so wealthy and at the same time so poor is that we often have a hard time connecting all the dots between those various stories. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to how do you do that in your work? Like how Mm -hmm. do you, because philanthropy is about people who have money, giving Mm -hmm. money for people who don't. And the only way you're going to get there is if you can draw the story that actually links those experiences together. How do you do that? Well, I think there's a few important ways. And I think um, I have a philosophy of what I call um, learning journeys. And so, you know, when I worked at UNICEF, there is no harder dollar to raise than getting someone to make a gift outside this country. And because there are plenty of needs, as you say, you know, I, 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 uh, uh, Toronto Foundation delivers um, one of our other acts is a is a is our vital signs report each year, and and our report in October showed that our poverty rate for children in the city has not changed in 15 years. I've just spent the last eight years at UNICEF. In the last 15 years in the world, we've halved poverty. So don't tell me that in this city, we can't actually do something about this. We've got neighborhoods that have poverty rates of 37%. Like let our, me, yeah, yeah, let me just pause yeah. you there for a yeah. minute. So, because I just want to make sure I'm getting this right. On a global scale, we've halved child poverty. But when we look at the North American context, because I'm pretty confident this isn't just a Toronto story. When we look at the North American context, context, we've actually seen it static in our cities? Well, we're certainly seeing it static here in Toronto. And I agree with you. I can't imagine that we're seeing vast improvements anywhere else. And it is, it comes back to this issue of the gap between rich and poor. Okay. And I hate using that language as someone who inspires philanthropy because there's nothing that makes the wealthy feel more guilty than talking about the problem being the gap between the rich and the poor, right? It, it really pits people against each other. So let me just say, it's a, it's a phrase the sector uses, but basically what we need to do is raise the floor, right? It's not that we don't want the wealthy to be successful. It's that we need to bring others along with us to make the best, um, most habitable communities. And this is again where my UNICEF and Toronto Community Foundation life come together because, you know, UNICEF released a study last year on the 29 rich countries of the world uh, on inequality. And um, that in fact, that the most successful societies in this world, in the rich countries, are the ones that have the smallest gap between those two places. And and really taking this role at Toronto Community Foundation for me is about 
tackling that piece, that there is a way. So getting back to your actual question, <laughs> it, you know, how do you bring philanthropy into that? I believe there's a great deal of learning and, and, and a deep need for understanding that does not exist between the the rich and the poor right now. And I think that these are complicated issues. So my my big platform is, and I, I worked at Stickets for 10 years. I have a ton of respect. We have some wonderful institutions in this, in this city. They do incredible things. But a lot of philanthropy is, is really focused on big gifts to big institutions. What I want to challenge our philanthropists to think about is issues. Issues instead of institutions, and not you know in lieu of, but in addition to that, there is a an opportunity in philanthropy to actually get involved in some of these really tough, intractable issues, and do something about it. Because philanthropy is flexible, it takes risks. You know, when you're talking to a philanthropist about a gift. They're the decision maker. Like this isn't like private sector where there's like layers that have to approve that there's a strategy they're following that might be in conflict with what we want to achieve. Philanthropists at the end of the day can make their own decisions. And this is one of the reasons I find it such an inspiring space to play in. But also philanthropists aren't immersed in poverty reduction. I talked to one of our fund holders recently who took a week off to go to Ryerson and take a course on homelessness. This is, they have, there's a hunger out there in our philanthropists to learn, but we don't create a lot of entry points for them, right? A lot of them can join boards. Like if you look at poverty, let's just look at poverty. You can join the Salvation Army board or you can go uh, volunteer in a soup kitchen. But I don't think actually either of those things helps you deeply understand the complex nature of poverty. So, but let's come back to that a minute because to be a philanthropist, do you, you know, do you have to understand the complex nature of poverty? Like really, this is why I raised mm -hmm. the point that you started with, which is really about stories and human stories and really, you know, the notion that um, it's a good thing for a child to be able to get an orange on Christmas morning and some warm new PJs is something that I think anyone can identify with. It's, yes. it's very human. And this notion, and I think we do get bombarded in cities right now with stats. We hear all the time these stats about how bad things are and how they're getting worse. And I think for most people, including myself, I actually find that sort of immobilizing. I really do. Yes. Like, wow, it's such a big problem. There's nothing I can do about it. How do you, in trying to inspire engagement, how do you... How do you find a way in? Um, and I and I appreciate that taking a course in homelessness at Ryerson is a way for someone to get a way in. But it's not realistic. But it's not realistic I'm not, for I'm most not envisioning of us. All yeah. my, I'm not going to start a university on poverty, right? But what I can create, and I've done this in my past life, is a series of experiences, let's call them cafeteria style, that will start to allow people to get involved in the challenges and understand the complexity of the problem. Because at the end of the day, today's philanthropist wants impact. They certainly the ones that involve themselves in a community foundation. They are there because they're saying, I want to have measurable impact on something. Um, and the easiest ways we can do that are the sort of output ways, the tangible ways that, that you know, like giving away 
baskets at, at the holidays. I want to bring philanthropy into the more complex problems and say, here's why uh, city building and the various aspects of the cities are worth getting involved in. But I need to teach you a few things first. I need you to understand a few subtleties because there are all these unconscious biases about why poverty exists. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, the fact that, you know, the, the, a lot of people aren't working hard enough, right? Mm -hmm. Or th there's no real sense of what inequity looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, that's, I think that's a big opportunity in city building. So let's just pause for a minute because I'm conscious that we've, you know, we've dived right yeah. in, but we haven't really talked about what a philanthropist is. And then I'd like to talk a bit about the role, but you know, well, at what point does someone shift from being a donor throwing 20 bucks in the Salvation Army kettle to a philanthropist, which I think we tend to associate with much larger scale donations or gestures that are tied to something else like naming rights or some other form of engagement. How do you define philanthropy and where do you draw those lines? Well, I think that what happens after I've been in the sector 20 years and it took me a long time to realize that Duh, we're not all the same, right? And so I wouldn't I wouldn't ca characterize a philanthropist as having a lot of money. I think that it is about the way they want to engage in their cause. Um, uh, for example, um, one of my board members asked me the other day about reading. You know, give me give me some books I can read. I want to just I want to more deeply understand inequity. I want to more deeply understand reconciliation. This is a big national theme for the Community Foundations of Canada for Canada's hundred fiftieth. And so, a lot of times, um, what I see as a philanthropist is someone who doesn't just make a donation because a friend asked. That's a donation, right? And it's it's generous. I'm not taking that away from them, but but philanthropy is a more deep value set. Um, and it comes, though, in different forms. Some philanthropists are keen on recognition. That's very important to them. Some are keen on uh, recognition and impact, and some just care about impact. I've got so many donors at the Toronto Foundation who wouldn't want their name out there anywhere, but they certainly will grill me on the impact that their money is having. Or they will, I had a board member, um, uh, Richard Petty is our vice chair, right? He's from MLSC, he's a great guy. He called me up the other day and said, my wife and I want to um, make an investment in Ward 38, uh, Youth at Risk. Can you give us a bunch of organizations we would have never heard about um, where we could invest? And so that's where philanthropy is, has a lot of subtlety to it. Mm -hmm, it's not mm -hmm. just big gifts with big recognition. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And I'm also saying I think it's evolving to a point where we used to think that philanthropists want choice and tangibility. I'm increasingly inclined to believe there's a whole group of them that just want impact. And I think cities offer us and some of the issues that both you are facing and I am facing from different angles um, – a great way to engage with that. So you talked a little bit about um, the idea of philanthropy being big gifts to big institutions versus 
kind of shifting the bar to be more about recognizing issues and addressing issues. And I think this is a really good way into the question of city building mm-hmm. and philanthropy with respect to city building in somewhat um, more traditional ways. We, of course, in the city of Toronto in 2016 saw our first major gift for the public realm, $25 million for the Undergardener, the Bentway Project, which is all about creating a spectacular uh, public space. What was so seminal about that gift was that it was a gift specifically targeted to the public realm and public space, as opposed to naming rights on a hospital or a university, which is well established in the city as being kind of the common domain of large scale philanthropy. What is the opportunity with respect to beginning to address some of the infrastructure and city building challenges that we see by embracing philanthropy? So first, let me just comment. The Matthews are a great example of what I'm talking about in terms of a donor who wants to create an equitable space. As, yes. And, well, and for our listeners, the Matthews are the donors who donated the $25 million for the revitalization of this space uh, underneath several kilometers of the Gardner Expressway. Yes. And what I would say is they also did, are a great example of the convening power of philanthropy because it wasn't just them. They brought a whole lot of other players into that conversation. And that's where city building philanthropy can get really dynamic. Um, and um, I think it probably helps that Judy is an urban planner herself. And, and so she has, you know, very clear set of vision for what she wants to do. And there's a whole other conversation there about... Um, um, I don't I don't see Judy Matthews as a danger, but you can see how you take that to the next place and you start asking are our philanthropists starting to control the city, right? And that's not a place any of us want to go let and certainly not the Matthews, I'm I'm quite certain. But so let me give you a very specific example of what I'm looking at. Um, uh, City of Toronto applied for and received a designation by Rockefeller Foundation this year to become one of the 100 resilient cities. Um, in the world. And as I have increasingly understanding in my conversations with both the city and Rockefeller, um, it's not that they have designated us as resilient, but as potentially resilient with the momentum to be a resilient city. And I love this as an example because Rockefeller Foundation, right, well-known United States-based uh, philanthropy organization, 100 years old. They actually did this movement for their 100th anniversary, and they said to themselves, um, we're, we're turning 100. What could we do for our 100th anniversary that would impact the whole world, be a game changer for the next 100 years? Right, right. And they looked out and said, what are the three big trends that are going to impact everyone in the world in the next three year, in the next hundred years. It's going to be urbanization, right? Near and dear to your heart, globalization and um, climate change. And so they said, okay, if we're going to tackle these three things, what is the best mechanism by which we could invest a hundred million dollars to do that? And they decided that the, the key point in all this is municipal politics mm-hmm. right? absolutely, and the power of cities to change everything. And I, I know I'm speaking to the converted here, but I think it's really powerful. And I love resilience as a, as a concept. In my sector, they use resilience all the time. And I'll talk to my colleagues and they'll say, oh, it's such an overused word. I actually think it's fresh. I think it's aspirational. It's inclusive. And so for me, 
I specifically want to use resilience in this movement with the city because we were part of the application process with you guys. Mm-hmm. And we want to we want to be part of the measurement process because the Resilient Cities movement has a measurement. There are 99 other cities out there, and I know because I follow you on Twitter, you know, looking globally is totally relevant. Canadians and specifically Torontonians hate to be compared domestically, (laughs) but we are totally open to being compared internationally. And uh, these other 99 cities, well, four of them uh, are in Canada, but there's Accra in Ghana, there's The Hague, there's Paris and London and Singapore. I mean, uh, Durban in South Africa. I mean, there are it's an incredible network. And so for me, I think it's a great entry point for philanthropy to start discussing what does resiliency mean, right? Cycling, health, uh, infrastructure, poverty reduction, equity. The city had a workshop yesterday and we started this discussion and exactly. prioritized housing, transit as the two most important things for resilience, Well, I'm glad you raised that as an example because I think it's um, a really pertinent example for a variety of reasons because it is about uh, scaling up the impact. It's about the leverage of those dollars and how they can actually be leveraged into the decision-making processes. A small part of the story that you you probably don't know is that before the Rockefeller Foundation actually created the Resilience Officer Program, they actually did interviews with municipal officials. And I had just started my job. I'd been in my job maybe four weeks and I got a call from the Rockefeller Foundation and they wanted to talk to me about how this could be most effectively used and integrated in the city of Toronto context. This is way before we were chosen. And we actually applied once and we didn't get it and we applied again and we and we got it. And that's the whole process that you're referring to right now that's underway. But what is so powerful about the way that was structured was the deep commitment to building on and being integrated into location-specific processes in order to ensure the relevance and leverage On the flip side of that, of course, is the philanthropist who comes in and says, um, I want to do X, Y, and Z, and the municipality throws up their hands and goes, well, that wasn't one of our priorities. That wasn't on our agenda. Thanks for showing up, but I guess we can't really say goodbye to this money, so now we're going to have to build a new expressway or do something that we weren't actually planning to do. And I do think... We have to always keep going back to having that conversation about what are the priorities, what's the agenda of any given context or city? Are we really solving a problem that needs to be solved through philanthropy? And then also what the role of philanthropy is. Because there's a risk There's a risk there otherwise. Absolutely. And I, so I totally agree with everything you said. And I think that the, the challenge is staying out in front with opportunities to engage as opposed to waiting for philanthropists to come up with their own ideas. Exactly. And that that is always the balance because there's so much entrepreneurial thinking out there. And 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 this is why I'm so keen on learning journeys because for me what I've found is if you can actually get the philanthropist in early and and take them down a road where they begin to more deeply understand the issues of urban planning. They begin to deeply understand the issues of inequality and how they all interplay. 
their light bulbs start going on and they go, oh, now I understand That's why you didn't want I to do this. That's something I be a part this. of, right? Exactly, but but I could do this. And so that's why I'm all about entry points. Like how can I create an entry point for these brilliant minds? They have often lengthy careers, tons of experience. But if you leave it until they've got their own idea, as opposed to putting a, um, a platform for them to get involved and then bring their ideas forward, it's a much more powerful interplay. And I think, so I would say in terms of Toronto Foundation, we are so uniquely positioned to be the the hub of that right? because right. We're, we're neutral. We, we have no, I mean, I don't sound very neutral about poverty right now, which I'm not, but I am neutral institutionally. I'm neutral organizationally. Right. And, and so I can create this safe space for philanthropy to happen and then explore. So let me throw out a bit of another counterpoint that I think something that, you know, we need to continue to have a dialogue about in our cities because frequently, um, I hear, whether we're talking about new park infrastructure or investment in schools or whatever it might be, community hubs, that in the American context, there's a lot more philanthropy. People are much more generous than they are in the Canadian context. And so, of course, there's um, a lot of work that we've done around really understanding this. And of course, one of the most famous examples is Central Park in New York City, which of course, there's a whole conservancy that was created in order to protect the park, but also to maintain it in perpetuity. And that was done through wealthy philanthropists. The part of the story that we often forget to tell is that the reason that that happened was because of the withdrawing of government from actually taking care of parks and recognizing parks as being important. Several years ago, I was in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, I did a little tour with some of the planning staff there and I was flabbergasted to discover two things. The first, the parks department consisted of one person. And that one person, part of his job was actually fundraising his own salary. So the withdrawal of government had created this need not only to, to fundraise for what I think most people would argue is a pretty uh, important role, but the whole department was gone. I, I was like, well, where are your people who mows the lawn? And he said, well, we're so fortunate because we have this great model here of philanthropy that actually takes care of our parks. And I have to tell you, I was skeptical. Yes, well, so sure, I'm not thinking that feels very fortunate. Exactly. But yes, yeah. So of course we did a tour of, of the city and I was, honestly, I was, I was breathless in my shock and dismay. There were beautiful parks and then there were parks that honestly looked like abandoned lots with tires thrown in them and garbage strewn everywhere. And essentially, the narrative that I learned was that his job was to work with local area ratepayers to fundraise, to generate money and to create organizations to take care of the local park. So as you can appreciate, the neighborhoods that had the financial wherewithal and also had the capacity to organize as well as the time and resources had really lovely local parks. And then there were vast areas of the city where there was, there was really this incredible deficit in green space infrastructure. And one could argue in the places where it mattered most because people were less likely to have their own grassy knoll in their backyard to, to, to mow. And what struck me, I think that might be an extreme case, but I'm not sure that it is. Um, but what struck me about that whole narrative was a risk that we actually see the withdrawal of government as something that's acceptable because we actually replace it with a much more inferior model 
uh, that doesn't not actually- just, So can I just yeah, say, yeah. not just inferior, inequitable. Yeah, right? well, that's so what I was going to say. It's just there, like, you just, you see, you, that's actually a, a great visual representation of inequity, right? Is that the, that the, those that do well get all that is nice and there's this whole forgotten group of vulnerable population that, is just left behind. So it raises the question, Sharon, around we want um, philanthropy, but at the end of the day, the reality is um, the uh, the redistribution that takes place through the taxation system has value and actually is very effective. I know one of the... Um, uh, the bees in the bonnet of my colleagues in the parks department at the city is that the city will put, you know, $33 million into a new, you know, master planning uh, park and community center. And then a private donor will show up with $500 and there'll be this huge brouhaha about the private donation. When in reality, the residents of the city of Toronto ought to be thanked for that new facility and for the new park because that is by far where the vast majority of the funding came from that actually made the project viable. So there can be this kind of false perception that the role of good government can in fact be replaced by philanthropy when in reality, the level of effort required to generate those dollars can never get you near what we're currently doing through our government systems and processes. So I totally agree. And what I would say is um, the plur- <laughs> where philanthropy is starting with city building tends to be with parks and tangibles. Right. Because as, as because because institutions have raised money by putting names on buildings and capital projects, philanthropists have been trained in many ways to look at other capital projects right. as an opportunity. So to be crystal clear about what I mean by issue-based philanthropy, it's the social change piece. It's bringing philanthropy into city building on the social capital side, where we're actually... Let, I want others to build the buildings and build the parks. I want to build the social infrastructure piece while you build the physical infrastructure piece. But I want to do it together. I want to be more aligned in a way where I can bring my philanthropist in and go, yeah, you know, you can build a park or you can build a community network. You can build uh, social cohesion in a community where you can build resilience in a community because here are the five things we're going to do here. We do this thing with the city um, called Recipe for Community. And uh, we've been doing it, I guess, for the last five or six years. It started before me. And it's an interesting model um, that I'd love to scale up where we work with communities in some of the poorest neighborhoods in the city. I think Rexdale's the next on the list and build community councils, uh, ask them to identify what they want to change and help empower them to their own future. That's what I'm talking about in terms of changing the kind of investments philanthropy makes in the city. I want to bring up these grassroots organizations that no one knows about. They don't have fundraising teams. They don't have rich marketing budgets and help connect my philanthropists to the work they're doing. But I want to align it better with the priorities of the city and make sure we're leveraging off each other and make sure that our city building is actually aligned as opposed 
opposed to you're getting random calls from people saying, hey, I got this great idea. I want to do X and I want to put my name on it. That's totally different. And I agree with you. It gets into dangerous territory and it gets scary in, I mean, that I would have been more than shaken to walk through Michigan yeah. <laughs> and see that um, uh, that only the the affluent had nice park space, right? That's well, exactly not what we want for the city. Well, exactly. And you know, it's funny, it's um, quite frankly, a model that was embraced many years ago in America around how schools were paid for. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> that yeah. actually led to, and it's a model that's now extended into public infrastructure. It didn't work for schools. It doesn't work for public infrastructure either. And I think there are risks around how we build out complete communities. Our objective in the city of Toronto is to be creating communities that have a whole diversity of income levels, a whole diversity of housing types. You can rent, you can own, you can be in a townhome or you can be in a loft or a little one bedroom studio all within the same community. And we know that a critical part of delivering on that is in fact a lot of what you're talking around about the soft infrastructure. How do people get to know each other in the community? Uh, how do people actually share experiences and support each other? And in some ways, you know, you said you're from a small town. It's something that we typically associate with a small town, but it's actually what what makes larger cities work is when people have a really strong sense of community. I heard a great um, measure recently on belonging. So uh, belonging is such a core part of community, right? And um, one of the questions that they ask people um, when they're trying to measure a sense of belonging in any neighborhood is how many kids, how many on your street, how many people know your child's name? Right. Oh, that's great. And it really, I remember um, the first time someone asked me this question, it was probably five years ago, being stunned for a moment because my daughter at the time would have been about five. And I remember when I grew up in this small town, everybody in my neighborhood knew who I was. I mean, on Halloween night, you had, you know, Mrs. Jeffrey with the little Halloween bags all pre-made with our names on them. With your names on, on them, them yeah. Right? And so I was I reflecting on that thinking, who does know my daughter? daughter's name. I'd lived on the street for five years. Did even my, like I was in a semi at the time, did even my like semi-detached, like we certainly said hello. Did they know, right? I lived in, I had told you earlier before the podcast, I'd lived in Leaside for 10 years. I had um, a, a neighbor, I was renting, but I had a neighbor who was in her 80s and her husband died. And I started shoveling her driveway. As soon as, he, as soon as the first winter came, I knew he was gone. I started shoveling her driveway and she got nervous. Like I was expecting something. Oh, and no. these, you know, these are sort of the city experiences that we need to change. We need to change that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny though, because I'll give you exactly the opposite kind of a story, which is that before I was a chief planner and I was working as a consultant across Canada, I would often go into small or mid-sized Canadian cities like Regina or Halifax and discover that not only did neighborhoods not have names, but that people generally didn't know their neighbors and they didn't know their neighbor for a very simple reason. They never walked down their street because they lived in communities where they kind of got walked out of their house into their car, drove out of the neighborhood, drove back in at night right into the garage and went right back into the house. 
And this shocked me because I discovered that living right in the heart of the city of Toronto, like I do, that I would actually pass the belonging test in my neighborhood, I think pretty well in terms of my kids from day one for a very simple reason. We're out on the street. We walk on the street. In fact, one of our great jokes in our neighborhood is that Valentine's Day, which is supposed to be, you know, romantic and intimate, is actually a community event because all of us walk out to restaurants and you literally see pairs walking out to all the restaurants, but we bump into all our neighbors as we're on our way to go out for dinner on Valentine's Day. And you see these little clusters of couples talking along the sides of the street. That is because of the urban fabric and because we have a walkable neighborhood. It leads to that outcome where people know each other's names and they know just enough about each other to provide some security without, in fact, feeling like it's too invasive. Like, you you know, you don't want to completely lose your anonymity. That's actually a valuable thing. You don't want that small town feeling where everybody knows everyone's business. You know, people sort of come to the city to get away from that. But on the flip side, you do want to know when your neighbor needs help. You do so, want to know that. Can I ask you a question then? Sure. So I was at um, uh, U of T's Urban Studies program a couple weeks ago, and they'd invited me in to talk about our Vital Signs uh, uh, project and to a group of their students and alumni. So it was an evening event, theater-style panel, but what they did is they had me speak, and then unbeknownst to me, it was actually rather a hilarious experience, they'd asked each of the three panelists to critique vital science. <laughs> it was very, it was a good- You were was, on the hot seat. I was on the hot seat and boy, they did a great job. Um, one of the stories is worth telling later, which if you're, if we have time, I'll tell you about it. But, but one of the things that came up was one of them, uh, one was a, a Ryerson prof um, from the urban program and then two student advocate types. And uh, one of them said to me, one of the biggest problems in city building and community building is that the urban planning mentality does not include the soft social infrastructure and that there's a culture clash there. Now, you've seen it all. Mm-hmm. Do you mm-hmm. agree? Do I, I mean, I suspect you're unique in the family of urban planners, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I'm just curious because I thought, well, that's really interesting. Is that a bridge mm-hmm. that needs? Mm-hmm. Well, I would say it's actually different in different parts of any city. And uh, in terms of how we plan, community services and facilities are really critical part of any planning process and looking at what are the community services, what is the infrastructure that's required to meet the needs of the community. Now, for a variety of reasons in different neighborhoods, we do you know, it's good, better, best. Um, We actually do really well in most of our neighborhoods um, in the city of Toronto and delivering that. But I would go back to where I was with my Valentine's Day story, which is that a lot of soft social infrastructure actually has to do with whether people know each other or not. Whether when you're walking down the street, you see people that you know and you wave and you can have a chat and you can talk about what you're doing. On the holidays, I bumped into a neighbor a couple of weeks ago on the street And we were standing out in the street talking forever. And finally, my husband came out and started yelling at me because he'd made dinner and he didn't know where I was. And we were standing out on the street chatting. And she said, you know what we need to do? She'd been in a book club, but she had to drive halfway across the city to get to the book club and traffic congestion so bad. And she said to me, you know what we need to do? We need to create a a book club in the neighborhood so that no one has to travel to get there. So that we can just walk down the street, go into the book club, have a few glasses of wine, 
and walk home again at the end of the night without having to get on transit or without having to get into our cars because we're doing it in the neighborhood. And the only reason we're doing the book club in the neighborhood is because it's just easier to do it in your neighborhood. It's just easier to do it with your neighbors in your neighborhood. It's not because our neighborhoods, uh, there's something special or magical about our interests in the neighborhood in the book club. It was actually purely about the convenience of geography. And I think when you start talking about the social infrastructure that makes for places where people will thrive, the extent to which people have an opportunity to know one one another is a really big part of whether we deliver on that promise. And ironically, we actually do that pretty well in, in many of our poorer neighborhoods, in part because some of them, particularly our tower neighborhoods, there's a lot of density there. And when we have some of the work that you're talking about going on where there's groups that are being formed, there's arrangements for shared childcare taking place within within well, communities. The recipes for community starts with food, it, right? Well, so with that food. That, the, the word community recipe gardens. is literal and they and they say food will bring communities together, especially in the tower communities where you've got all this multicultural cooking and and styles of, of foods that they all gather together and a lot of them will say it's the first time they met their neighbor in their apartment building. Well, and often um, there's lots of great case studies and stories about the power of community gardens to be transformative because people get to know their neighbors, they get to share food, there can be events associated with the food that's harvested, uh, there's a shared sense of responsibility, there's usually some governance that is required so people have the opportunity to kind of negotiate some interests. It's a bit it's a bit more involved than just waving at someone on the street or, or, or chatting on the street before you go in, into the house at the end of the day. So I think it's true, to get back to your question, it's true that in the city planning perspective, we're looking at the design of the city and the built form of the city, but that softer infrastructure, the, the social planning part is actually done elsewhere, but it's a layer that sort of delivers on the promise. You need both. Uh, but it does, from my perspective, to start with community design. Because at the end of the day, if no one ever walks down the street, you're never going to know your neighbors. Um, because it has to be too intentional. And the, the you know, it, it's a funny thing to me. I just relatively recently became a dog owner, but it was a funny thing to me to discover that my uh, sister-in-law who lives out in, you know, the most suburby of suburbs in Etobicoke tends to know all of her neighbors for a very simple reason. She has a dog <laughs> and the dog owners, they get out, they're there early in the morning. They're there all seasons of the year. They bump into each other in the park. They bump into each other on the street because of the dog. They already have a basis for generating some conversation. She has this incredibly rich community around her that in many ways can be attributed to the fact that she gets out every day and walks her dog. And as a result of that, knows people in her community and has a variety of different supports in her community that come alongside of that. So some of it's actually not that hard. You know, it's not, you don't need a big planning program. Well, I was going to say that, I mean, I think the challenge becomes, uh, uh, even just reflecting on the dog piece, um, there are communities that just couldn't even get there. And so mm-hmm. how do we, I, 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 for me, where I'm going to be looking over the next few years, and especially through this resilience lens, is how do I make sure these most vulnerable populations, the ones that have precarious work, that have precarious living situations, that are dealing with an inability to feed their children, how do we make sure that they feel part of this community? Um, because I think what I believe, and 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 I believe that philanthropy has a great role to play in that. 
um, that I think there's a lot of um, ability of that to actually change things. Uh, the, the one thing we've been talking about with philanthropy that uh, the point I wanted to make that I want to make sure gets caught is the other thing that philanthropy can do is it can speed things up. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. It can it can be a catalyst. So you were talking about all the the you know the the big investment of the city and the small investment of a philanthropist. Um, not a not a not the example I would use in terms of a catalyst, but sometimes you can see how a small amount of money can actually be a catalyst for a lot more. Absolutely, and that's when I think it's working well for the city and for its and for community and for the philanthropist um, because it you know they because they can make their decisions quickly because they can invest quickly and uh, and just speed some things up. But it does require a lot of clarity around priorities and it and it does require leadership. Well, and I think really one of the big takeaways for me from this conversation is actually around the importance of leverage associated with philanthropy. And I think the Rockefeller Foundation Resilient Cities Initiative, um, you know, this is about a global leveraging on a global scale, leveraging global change as a result of a very surgical, strategic, well thought out, spectacularly executed program. Yes. It's a program. And when you think about it, I mean, it's a hundred million dollars spread over a hundred cities. It's not that much money. Right, right. Right. But you're right. They have been so clear about what they call their theory of change, right? That if they can insert themselves here. So my question is, what role does Toronto Foundation now need to play to leverage that? So how, what, what is the space we play in that we can take our small amount of money to then leverage resilience for the city of Toronto in a powerful way with our philanthropists, how can I quadruple, how can I do 10 times what Rockefeller is going to invest here? How can I bring 10, 20 million to the table on top of that to help with the social piece for these most vulnerable populations that we know are going to be critical to the success of the movement? So that's, you have nailed it. Like for me, that's where philanthropy can be powerful. But it it really needs clear vision, prioritization, and leadership. And that's why I'd rather build off something that is already a priority for the for the city, already a priority for, um, uh, or already an existing platform that's already well thought out. But then how can I plug into that with more philanthropy and more change? You know, Sharon, um, Invisible City as a podcast is all about this idea that there's all kinds of things that happen in a city that you may not actually see that are critical to creating a successful place. And the idea is to talk about those things and to make them visible, the objective being so that we understand them and can leverage them better. So one of the things I want to ask you about is... um, you know, how money gets distributed and where money goes. And I have a little bit of experience in this field because many years ago, many moons ago, uh, I in fact ran a charity. Um, It was a charity that I started. It was a not-for-profit organization that employed at-risk youth and transitioned those youth from uh, being on the streets. This is during the era of the squeegee kids, uh, which you may remember under under one of our former mayors, and transforming the experience of those kids so that they could come off the streets and be employable and actually move into permanent employment. And one of the things that we struggled because we, of course, fundraised in order to run our programs and we had a huge success rate and hundreds of kids a year actually went through our program and it was a sustained program because 
a kid can't show up and overnight learn the social skills and the job skills that they need in order to succeed. So frequently kids were in our programs for a couple of years and there was a lot of mentoring that went on. But one of the challenges that we faced was that, you know, we were sort of um, taking little bits of funding from here and there. And then every once in a while, there would be some big announcement that there was some big festival happening in the city, you know, some arts and cultural event. And there was, you know, a hundred million dollars from three levels of government. And we would literally be so disheartened. And we would think, my goodness, if there was any way we could be that sexy, uh, we knew that we were doing important work, but here we were scraping and scrounging, running a very tight ship, paying people way too little for the incredible amount of work that they did. And then we would see these kind of sexier initiatives get all of uh, get all of the cash. And you know, I'm wondering if you can comment on this challenge because there must be a real draw for philanthropists, particularly those who want some profile out of their philanthropy to actually give their money to the places where there's, you know, sort of some sex appeal associated with the project. So I would say your story is not uncommon. You know, there, there are probably in Toronto thousands of small organizations doing really good work and living hand to mouth, right? That was us. Right? It just constantly head down, killing themselves to pay the bills and do the good work that they're doing. And it's a challenge. Like, uh, you know, to a certain extent, those folks that are attracted by the recognition piece um, in terms of their philanthropy are probably never going to turn their eye to these kinds of activities. But, you know, my ideal is that you know, having a platform like Toronto Foundation to be having conversations with some of the great philanthropists in the city um, is to start to open their eyes to what else is out there, to challenge them to be more creative. Um, I know that in philanthropy and in, in wealth circles, there's a lot of pressure to support each other in their philanthropy. And a lot of times you get asked by friends. And But what I see in the continuum of philanthropy for people is that as, as they mature, they start to say to themselves, what is my own passion? And I'm hoping, um, and maybe I'm just too idealistic, uh, that in this role, I can start to challenge those norms, to start to say, you know, you, giving to the big institutions, um, and there's some world-class institutions and it's critical for the city to have world-class art and world-class culture and world-class institutions. But the question becomes how much is too much? Like, let me just say one very controversial thing. Um, I was at SickKids for 10 years. They just released their new uh, SickKids versus the Odds campaign. It's a brilliant campaign, right? It's very, I don't know if you've seen it. It's very catchy. It's very catchy. But but I, I start to ask myself, now that I interact more with these small organizations that are doing great things for smaller numbers of people. Well, I mean, sick kids work isn't at scale, right? It's they're serving the most critical, critically ill kids in the country. And that's really important work, but how much is enough for some of these organizations? Look at some of the private schools, look at their, their big, big gifts. And I understand loyalty. I understand alumni relations. I, I understand it all. I've been immersed in this sector for years, but I hope that um, if there are philanthropists listening, that there's also an openness to a different kind 
of approach, a curiosity for some of these smaller organizations and finding their way. It's a little bit harder to get to them, but to know that there is life beyond institutional philanthropy. Well, it's interesting because it strikes me as you're talking that this goes back to the heart of two things we've talked about in this podcast. And the first one is the importance of stories, people's stories. You started with the story of your dad, people's stories connecting philanthropists to a circumstance that isn't their circumstance, that in fact something that, uh, but is something that they can make a difference in um, through their philanthropy. So the stories really matter, getting the stories out there. Um, But the second is the story about the parks in Grand Rapids, which is that the parks that sort of are needed the least, where you've got the wealthiest communities adjacent to them, are also able to attract the most amount of money and are the prettiest. And it feels to me like some of what you're saying is that there's a risk that the philanthropy sort of goes to the places sometimes where it's not necessarily going to be leveraged to have the biggest impact, but where you already have some institutional power and some institutional structure, that means it's easier to connect with those philanthropists than a lot of those kind of more grassroots oriented initiatives. You know, it's funny with uh, All Aboard Youth Ventures, which was the not-for-profit that uh, I co-created Wow, almost 20 years ago now. And we had a whole bunch of different services. We had job training. We had a restaurant. Uh, What was interesting about it was that we were really sustained by a few key donors who didn't give huge amounts of money, but just kind of bumped us over the threshold and kept us really stable over the course of 15 years. Um, And each one of them had a story. They were wealthy men on Bay Street. um, And each one of them had a story of a kid or a, um, uh, a brother or a sister that ended up on the streets. And so they were giving back. They were people with a tremendous amount of access and privilege and financial resources, but they hadn't forgotten or they were still in deep pain about something that was happening in their lives. Um, and they saw, they could see directly how relevant the work we were doing was. But we didn't have like big flashy advertising campaigns. We didn't hire PR firms. We were like just sort of talking to people and trying to scrounge together the money that we needed because we knew this work mattered and we believed in it. And the question is, how do you bridge, you know, how do you bridge that gap? That is the million dollar question, not to bring money into it in another way. But the the fact is that... um, uh, the real challenge and the opportunity you created for those few patrons was an entry point. And this is my whole point in terms of my vision for Toronto Foundation is how can I use this platform to create entry points for philanthropy into these little powerful, impactful organizations that create incredible change for smaller groups of people um, that impact the rest of, like it's it, it, it will impact the rest of their lives and and the community as a whole and um, that's you know at the end of the day if I can start to open those doors and create those bridges um, we'll start to see 
more rapid change in the work you're doing, um, uh, just blossoming. You're going to build me the foundation and I want to build sort of all of that wonderful social change that goes around it by creating entry points to these smaller organizations and getting money to these places um, so that they, they can do the good work that they do and not have to be struggling to survive. Well, and you know, as I said earlier, um, our work is one layer and it needs your work. We need your work. We need what you're doing as another layer on the built infrastructure of the city to create great livable places where people will thrive. Uh, this conversation could not have been a more perfect fit. Thank you so much for coming into the studio today. And thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. This episode of Invisible City was written and produced by Brad Bradford, Ryan Freeman, and of course, I played a little role too. Invisible City is a product of Lossless Creative, produced in my beautiful city, Toronto. Each episode features an original score produced by Lossless Creative. Could you do us a favor? If you like what you've heard, could you give us a rating or a review? It really will only take a moment and it would mean the world to us. This may come as a bit of a surprise, but Invisible City is co-produced by only Ryan and I. We are a tiny little team, and we would love your support. You can find all of our episodes on our website, invisiblecitypodcast.com. <laughs>